And until we're really honest and proactive and intentional about creating places for everyone, where everyone's lived experience is welcome, then we, we won't see kind of any real change on that front. And I think, you know, we still have a long way to go in Cleveland, but I believe we are making great progress. Hello and welcome to Then There's Cleveland, where we'll discuss downtown Cleveland's success, challenges, and future opportunities for growth. Along with our guests, we will be discussing what led to Cleveland's recent economic renaissance and the vision for downtown Cleveland 10 years from now. How did we get here? What will it take to continue the momentum and build a place that attracts the best entrepreneurs, innovations, and disruptive thinkers to the city that we all love? Hello, I'm Michael Deemer, Executive Vice President for Business Development at Downtown Cleveland Alliance, where I lead our efforts to attract people, jobs, and investment into downtown Cleveland. And I'm Lauren Napakini. I am the marketing coordinator for Downtown Cleveland Alliance. I work on the marketing team and on projects like this. Today's guests are Tom Yablonski and Justin Bibb. Tom has been acknowledged as downtown's walking historian and is, in my perspective, quite the underdog and leader in the creation of three historic districts within downtown, an advocate and local expert on historic tax credits and adaptive reuse projects. He's the current executive director of the Historic Gateway Neighborhood Corporation, the Historic Warehouse District Development Corporation, and is the executive vice president of Downtown Cleveland Alliance. Justin is also a native Clevelander, and many would recognize him as a strong and upcoming young professional who is very passionate about Cleveland. Unlike many millennials, he sits in a lot of rooms, and his perspective is highly sought after. He's respected by many leaders in our community. Tom and Justin, say hi and tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves. Hello, Michael. Uh, Justin, I'll I'll go first. I've worked on downtown Cleveland issues uh, for over 35 years. The focus, uh, thinking about holistically, is really asset-based development because Cleveland's past is a great one, so we had a lot of assets that we could rediscover and reuse, and that's the core of why our downtown was able to come back. Hi, Michael and Lauren. Again, I'm Justin Bibb, born and raised in the Mount Pleasant, Corlett neighborhood of Cleveland, southeast side of the city. Moved back to Cleveland from New York City five years ago to get my JD MBA at Case Western. And currently, I work at Key Bank as the Vice President of Corporate Strategy, where I spend my time thinking about the future of banking and how we can help Key Bank become the country's best regional bank. All right. Can you guys uh, tell us about your relationship? We know you guys already know each other from your past experiences. I went to high school with Tom's son, Alex. We also played basketball together. Unfortunately, Alex was a bit taller than me, so he was dunking, <laughs> and I wasn't a little jealous. But, uh, yeah, that, that's how I know Tom. Yeah, well, you also know my daughter, Elise, yes, also exactly. went to Trinity. So, yeah. uh, thankfully, both Justin and my daughter, Elise, are in Cleveland and active in caring about its renaissance. And we're trying to lure Alex back at some point, <laughs> right, Tom? Yes, okay, and good. Alex is in Chicago. Why isn't he in Cleveland? We're trying. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> It's Michael's Way job, to put him too, on the right? spot, Lauren. Exactly. It's a uh, podcast for a reason, right, <laughs> about Cleveland. Well, Tom, Justin, you guys are, are longtime Clevelanders, and you know our cities and our downtown's story very, very well, but a lot of our listeners may not. The international spotlight really came to Cleveland in a big way in, in 2016, where, Tom, if maybe you could share a little bit of, of your perspective about how did we get here? 
it's been a it's been a process, and that's why, and it's been going about longer than the public perception is. So we put a book out about the warehouse district in the early 2000s and called it, I believe, a 25-year overnight success story. So some of the things that people discovered in 2016, for example, were part of a effort that was a built built on project by project by project. So Originally, we only had one historic district that was focused on for housing. That was the warehouse district. But that set the table for saving East 4th Street from demolition and created helped create the Gateway District. So we've learned an adaptive reuse lesson, reuse lesson as good as any city in America. We statistically are one of the leaders. And I think one of the beauties, and Justin, I'll let him talk, their generation has rediscovered the importance of authenticity, walkability, and the scale of Cleveland and the quality of our architecture contributes to what people, younger people, seem to now care about. We know Justin walks to work, so yeah, we know you can speak on that. A nice, crisp, smooth five blocks, which is great. <laughs> it's been fascinating to see downtown's transformation over the last decade or so. You know, as a kid, I remember taking a bus with my grandma to go to the Woolworth store downtown, and she would come downtown to pay her bills. And I've always been fascinated by urban centers, and I've just been so impressed that even in just the last five years, how downtown has become a place that is truly diverse in so many ways. And so I'm getting all the the great amenities of living in a in a you know New York or D.C. But also, I think what really makes Cleveland attractive for me is that it's easier to build a sense of authentic community, and that's very hard to find given kind of all the the development you're saying in some other urban markets, I think that's what makes Cleveland really attractive to me. Justin, we had a, a chance to talk a couple weeks ago getting getting ready for the release of, of Downtown Cleveland Alliance's annual report. You know, one, one of the things we talked about a little bit was the importance of a downtown, of a major city being a, a diverse and welcoming place. Wondered if you could, you know, elaborate on, you know, from your perspective, having lived in a lot of mm-hmm. uh, other major cities why it's so important for a downtown in particular to be a a really diverse and welcoming place. Well, I mean, if you look at the history of cities, your urban core is really kind of your, your front doorstep. If you don't have a welcoming front door where people feel like it's a place for them, it makes it hard to create that true, authentic, diverse experience. And so I think for a long time in Cleveland, we've had this east west divide for lack of a better term, because race has really divided our city in, in so many ways. And until we're really honest and proactive and intentional about creating places for everyone where everyone's lived experience is welcome, then we, we won't see kind of any real change on that front. And I, and I think, you know, we still have a long way to go in Cleveland, but I believe we are making great progress. Justin brings up the cultural challenges of that, which are which are significant. But the Cleveland also that developed for some physical reasons. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. one of the one of the projects that we're working on that will ultimately augment and make downtown more welcome is is access to amenities. So one of the more important projects that was envisioned over thirty years ago was to rethink the whole River Valley. And out of that, the National Park Service got involved, and we created a National Heritage Area where the spine of that is the towpath trail and if you look at the city and county's green space plan if you do the linkage trails they connect both east and west and connect into that spine and give downtown a great asset that's authentic you end up on our riverfront to piggyback on that i think also cleveland has suffered from a kind of suburban dominated complex where we're scared of the big city and so i think proactively we have to do a better job of 
being okay with getting out of our comfort zone and being exposed to different parts of our community that we wouldn't be exposed to before. I'll give you an example. You know, I didn't go to the West Side Market in, until I was uh, an, an, a junior in high school. You know, wow. um, my dad told me I, I, could ne- I should never go to Little Italy growing up as a kid because of right. the racist issues mm-hmm. that occurred when he was a kid growing up in Glenville. And so, you know, you're seeing that change. But I think, you know, we, we still have some of this phobia of I'm scared of the big city. And, you know, I think we still have a long way to go to kind of get and force folks to kind of get out of their comfort zone and, and be OK with, you know, congregating and fellowshipping with folks that come from different backgrounds. Do you think even with connectivity between RTA or even the towpath trail, you know, these things happen, especially with like the health line, there was, you know, some pushback on that when that happened. What do you think is the theme of the driving force to get these projects done or going that's happened with those projects before? Well, bring up the health line. That's a good example, Mm -hmm. though, where we took assets and we linked them to each other. So linking is the real key thing. It's very important that we have the physical trail now that is on the lakefront from Edgewater Park all mm-hmm. the way into downtown. And you see the amount of investment and usability and walkability that's happening organically off that. A lot of that was not planned or expected, yeah. the amount of investment that's right there. And to the Justin's point, if you look demographically, who's moving into those areas, they're coming from all parts of the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and to Tom's point, you know, I think— in Cleveland, we do have this terrible relationship with the risk, where if you fail, you're, you're, it's considered taboo. And in other cities like New York or Silicon Valley, you want to fail, and, and failure is um, embraced because when, when you fail, you figure out what works and what doesn't work, and you go back to marketing, you try again, right? And so I think that we have to find a way to change the environment and, and change our relationship with risk so that we're more risk-oriented. I think it's a great insight, and I don't want to put you on the spot and ask you to be the voice of an entire generation, but I'm curious <laughs> about your perspective on this. Part of what you're observing is not just a, a Cleveland phenomenon. There's a little bit of a, a Midwestern cultural aversion to risk, and I, I wonder if if you see younger Midwesterners a little bit more open to risk-taking and perhaps not looking at coming up short the, the same way that uh, previous generations may have? Yeah, I do. You know, I think that our generation, we have a sense of urgency about how we solve these problems. I think we're willing to take that risk because you know, if we don't, then we're going to still see a lot of these systemic issues plague cities like Cleveland, right? So when it comes to transit, when it comes to public education, when it comes to being bold about entrepreneurship and, and you know, and, and creating new startups, you know, I think that, you know, we have this kind of let's just go for it and see what happens kind of mentality. Because I think, you know, our generation has, has seen so much in society that that's just kind of our our, our, our swag, for, for lack of a better term. And I do think that, you know, we're seeing more and more leaders above us say, hey, we got to kind of make sure they have a seat at the table. And I think that that divide is slowly eroding over time here. Tom, what's your perspective on this? I mean, you, you've seen a lot of ups and downs in Cleveland and generational shifts in, in leadership. What, what's your perspective? Agreeing with Justin that we need to take more risk, but also recognize the areas where ha- we have taken risk and are a leader. So Cleveland boomed after the Civil War, and there was all kinds of entrepreneurial risks, and it became a very wealthy city. All that seemed to go away. We seemed to be affected more by, as much as any community, by the Depression. We became very insular. So we need that. We need to grow that spirit of entrepreneurism again. And I think the at least the 
programs where I'm talking about, we are the risk takers. We are one of the leading cities in, in the artist housing movement, which kicked off the adaptive reuse movement. So it's, it's tapping more into the creative people, the artistic people. And I think some of those folks are at the forefront of these neighborhoods we see rejuvenating. That's, that's part of downtown. That's part of Tremont. It's part of Ohio City, part of Asian village area. Downtown Cleveland Alliance is a nonprofit economic development organization working to encourage new investment, attract professional talent, and support business in downtown Cleveland. Find out how to start here, work here, and grow here at downtowncleveland.com for more resources. Justin, I'd kind of like to bring it back to, to downtown Cleveland. You know, we, we've talked about a, a number of issues facing the city and uh, a number of our assets. But, you know, as you reflect on, you know, your experience working downtown, living downtown, having traveled and, and lived in a number of other major cities and their central business districts, what do you think that are some of the things that may be holding our downtown back a little bit and if we address them might help us accelerate our growth? Well, one of the things that comes to mind is I think from an investment perspective, we rely too much just on public capital. So instead of focusing on one major brick-and-mortar real estate project, how do we overlay that economic capital and deploy it strategically in a broad-based way so that we're really getting more ROI in terms of how we're investing our dollars? And so I think kind of being more creative on that front is important. And secondly, you know, public transit is, is very, very, very important to think about. We're having big issues with that at the state level. You know, as a board, member of the Board of RTA, uh, re- the Regional Transit Authority here in Cleveland, is something that, that, that I'm seeing um, in our work there to kind of turn that organization around and, and really kind of find creative ways to get more investment in public transit locally. You know, my generation doesn't want to have a car. I have a car, and I hate having a car right now. And so how do we ensure that we're being proactive and really addressing our issues around public transit? And then I think thirdly, it's this notion of, you know, criminal justice reform is very important. You know, we you can't have a thriving urban core if we don't find a way to employ people that are coming back from prison into our workforce and ensuring that we are really ending kind of the school to prison pipeline and being more intentional about how we think about how these policies are all interconnected. But I think Cleveland has a wealth of resources, both from the private sector, from the public sector, and the philanthropic sector, that if we think boldly, I think we could be a really a, a true national leader in urban reform. But I think for a long time, we thought that our urban renaissance was creating more buildings. But I think we got to kind of reimagine it in terms of how do we deploy and empower human capital a bit more effectively. I want to pick up on uh, an opportunity that Justin helped amplify. Healthy lifestyles. A walkable downtown creates a healthy lifestyle. We have a lot of philanthropy that gets directed towards medical care, but the, the donation goes to putting one's name on a medical building, I might argue, might already be built. So a couple of other cities to learn from, Indianapolis with the Cultural Trail, their private philanthropy funded that. Our whole towpath trail is almost... 90% government-funded, as Justin brought up the example of we've had to seek public investment to get these things done. We've not maximized the private investment that might be possible. So I think one of the things we have to really grow is the potentials of where that private investment 
can amplify and improve the community. The other example besides that when it comes to mind that's also trail-related, but in Indianapolis where they built the Seattle Mile, their gap was filled by their utility. It actually ended up being almost the exact same amount First Energy put out the exact same month to put their name on Brown Stadium. I would argue who got a better deal. So I think we really have to work leadership-wise to get those promotional, philanthropic, private efforts to amplify and um, really exponentially expand the opportunity. And by him giving that example of the uh, Global Health Center, which I still think was a great community investment, but it shows me if we think a little differently, maybe it could even be a stronger investment. Go, Justin. <laughs> Justin, back to you about kind of creativity around transit. We had Kate Jonkis at our state of downtown at the City Club last year, and she talked about, she's from Seattle, and she talked about making public transit more attractive so people would use it and it's more accessible for people. Or I've seen, you know, cities have put Seth Rogen's voice on the announcements. Is that you know, something that you would like to see in Cleveland? Or, you know, how do you see that going forward? Just throwing some ideas out there. At this stage, I mean, I, I, we should be looking at every idea, throwing it on the wall and seeing what sticks. But I think for RTA to kind of get to that point, we really needed to kind of restructure the organization. We're looking for a new CEO right now. We're doing a national search. We're doing a number of, I think, important studies to really identify what are the key, pri- what should be the key priorities that are research-informed for the organization, firstly. Secondly, how do we make sure that we're restoring public trust and credibility Mm -hmm. uh, as an organization? Because before we go to the taxpayers and say we need more dollars, we got to show the taxpayers that, hey, we've gotten our house in order. But to your, your earlier point, I think we should be thinking really boldly about transit. And I've been trying to push the organization to think of us not as a transit organization, but as a, a, a transit-oriented partner and a collaborative and platform that can deploy multiple transit solutions. So whether it's partnering with Bird scooters mm-hmm. for first-mile, last-mile solutions you know, whether it's the great work that the Fund for Economic Future is doing around mobility, that we can partner with them to address the the access to transit issue we have around our workforce development issues in our community. But really kind of being more collaborative with our community partners to, to ensure that we are being as effective and as innovative as possible, I think it's important for RTA to kind of have that vision moving forward. All right. Maybe we'll put you on the, the sounds for transit, right? <laughs> I, I have a thought for I did not know Justin was on the RTA I'm board. on too many boards, man. <laughs> no, but I, I'm going to give you an example. We're going to take of, care of some business here. No, yeah. no, because Michael brought up downtown, and if you only think of a thing in a singular way, you might miss an opportunity. So, for example, we, we took advantage of what we thought was a great connector and built the waterfront line, which mm. is not heavily utilized, but— the route of Why that, isn't it? Why isn't it? Well, that's what I want to go to. It, yeah. it was not thought to be multimodal, to his point gotcha. about being transit-oriented. So that exact route is equivalent to the route to, for the warehouse resident, one of the, when we did a survey of them, they wanted to be have access to the trail network. So there needs to be a linkage from Topaz Trail, Canal Basin, up the river valley on the east side, on the downtown side of the river, where, all the, where many people live, more than anywhere else, actually, and connected to the lakefront, the North Coast Harbor. That is doable. For example, it's not the same thing, but the Cuyahoga Valley Scenic Railroad, its most busiest is when they go multimodal and they allow bikes, board the bike on the train gets the most people. Similarly, if they integrate themselves with bike and pedestrian usage through that right-of-way, there is room for four train lines. You really don't need 
you can maximize the value of that from a public space standpoint, and they can be an asset, not just a singular waterfront line that has limited usage. So I'm going to try to take advantage of knowing you're now on the yeah, board. Yeah, so we should talk. And we have a coffee <laughs> meeting coming up, so let's add that to our uh, working we'll agenda. add that to our agenda. Lauren, I'm g- glad you brought up the whole issue of transit and, and mobility options because I think as, as we sit back at, at Downtown Cleveland Alliance, we really – we really look at the importance of addressing those issues as, you know, probably the biggest thing that we think we need to address, you know, for people who are, you know, Justin, going back to y- your comparison of Cleveland to, you know, other global cities, the places that we're competing with for for talent and business growth. Our sense is that people coming to Cleveland from elsewhere just expect that those kinds of options are going to exist. Absolutely. It has to be part of our core value proposition. And Michael, your your folks at DCA might disagree with me on this, but we have too many parking lots downtown. No, we we, we agree with oh, that. We don't good. disagree with All right, you. good, good. Too many parking lots downtown. You've been watching downtown. too much social media. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm guilty of that. Too many, you know, parking lots downtown. We got to find a way to optimize that. We got to think about, you know, how, how how should we be planning our downtown for 2050, not just, you know, 2019. Yeah, we, uh, we've got one surface parking lot with a, a building going up on it. We hope that by the end of the summer, we'll have another one or two. And yeah. Yeah, every, everywhere we see a, a surface parking lot, we see a, a development opportunity. So. Absolutely. What are those projects? Shout them out. Uh, well, we've got the, one the, the Lumen in Playhouse Square, okay. Okay. Uh, which will be over 300 apartments when it's completed by the end of next year. And you know we're we're hopeful, very hopeful that by the end of the summer the nucleus project mm-hmm. uh, will get going, and that'll bring another couple of hundred apartments and some very badly needed new office space to downtown. You know there there are obviously a couple other big surface lots that we we'd like to see get going, but it's it's a challenge. But if we can get a couple going, we, we ho- hopefully a couple more will follow. And Justin's example and Michael, I'll put the historian hat back on me. We would even have more if we wouldn't have created the historic districts we did. Mm-hmm. The reason the warehouse historic district was created in the early 80s was to stop the demolition of buildings that was happening because the Justice Center got built. So you had this fabulous 19th century downtown that was being lost. That was where the original Civil War era downtown was. And that became the core of our adaptive reuse and made downtown a residential neighborhood. Hopefully, with your insight and leadership of new people, we can rethink some of those public policies. Tom, I wanted to circle back. Years ago, Cleveland was really at the forefront of national political leadership on a number of issues that were that were vexing to the entire country. It, you know, I, I think of, you know, we're celebrating 50 years of the Cuyahoga River catching on fire, but that really launched Cleveland to the forefront of the environmental movement and creating the EPA and the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. We just celebrated 50 years of Stokes and the city of Cleveland becoming the, the first major city to elect an African-American mayor. Ed, I'm a relative newcomer to Cleveland. I've not been in the city as long as you have. I've been here for about eight years, but around the Midwest most of my life. And I've drawn a lot of inspiration coming to Cleveland and thinking about that history and the the leadership that the city exerted on those those national issues at a local level. And I guess I've I've always been a little bit surprised that that's that history of leadership is not doesn't seem like something that's necessarily broadly celebrated until recently, now that we're hitting right. these 50-year well, anniversaries. And I'm th- interested in both of your perspectives on that. Th- thanks for asking that, because that was one of the motivations behind one of our programs we created. Not the only one, but we have, we have, we have six historic hikes 
in Cleveland now, and it's our 11th year called Take Hike. And we celebrate that Carl Stokes and Lou Stokes were the leaders of the clean water movement. And I think it's important those stories get told because they didn't, they grew up in very difficult surroundings. In spite of that, you know, made themselves get very well educated. Those, those stories are so inspirational and important mm-hmm. to tell. The other thing with Cleveland is we are a city really of first, both from the African-American history and uh, female history. So some other take characters, Linda Eastman was the first major female librarian. Adele Prentice Hughes founded the Cleveland Orchestra. You know, we, the sports history of Frank Robinson and Larry Doby and even even our Paul Brown character. Paul Brown was the person who reintegrated pro football. Hmm. So those are all Cleveland stories, and we were a leader, and we should use that as inspiration to be a leader again. And I, to that point, Michael, I think those stories don't get told enough. And I'd say that um, those stories are great. But I think we're hitting a point where we need to find a way to start to highlight the stories of folks that are doing the work now. Agreed. And I think for a while we've been so focused on political leaders. And I think that's important. But the way that we're seeing society shift, you know, I want to start figuring out how do we celebrate the entrepreneurs, the the community activists, you know, the the, the community builders, the business builders, the folks that aren't always getting the flashy headlines but are making an impact behind the scenes and doing a lot of the hard work. And I think finding, you know, more daily heroes and sheroes that people have immediate access to that feels more real and tangible, if we do that a little bit more, we can also inspire this upcoming generation to kind of take the reins and and make our city the great city it can be one day. I think those are great examples. You always uh, might run into someone in Cleveland that, you know, you find out what they do is their job, yeah. but they're doing a side hustle. Mm-hmm. And it's inspiring. And you're like, I had no idea this person mm-hmm. was right in my backyard. And, you know, I want to go home and just kind of do the same thing or yeah. collaborate with them. And I think that's what's inspiring right now, how you're talking about those stories. We're great, and they are. They're fabulous. But, you know, we have to be in the present day and be inspired and have that kind of, you know, rolling in us. But to the point he made, I think it's also a communication strategy because those people are already here. Mm -hmm. Yet sometimes I would argue their stories aren't told enough. So, yeah. Very humble area. We have to – well, here's here's the thing I feel about Cleveland having worked in the nonprofit sector for most of my life. It's a paradox. I've seen more volunteerism and energy towards community good because mm-hmm. I work statewide, probably any as, as much as anywhere in the state. On the other hand, there's there's parallel of people who are negative, and it's always been one of our challenges to overcome the negativity with a huge amount of volunteer enthusiasm. And, and to me, they both exist in the same market, which seems a little odd. So I just really think we have to recognize the other people help amplify them, and help grow that spirit. And, and Justin mentioned he's on Destination Cleveland's board, and I think they've done some of that work. That's why you see the survey changes of how people feel about telling people to visit me in Cleveland or bring other, because people have started to realize what assets we do have, and we have to take those and build on that. That that what will create the opportunity, Justin speaking of, in my opinion. It's one of the things. It's not the only thing, but it's important. And our storytellers just can't be Cleveland.com and seen. And, you know, we have to find new new avenues, new media channels to, to disseminate new stories with new storytellers to have a new narrative of Cleveland that speaks to everyone's lived experience. Well, I, this has been a, a, a terrific conversation. I think we're starting to bump up on, on, uh, on our, our end of the time here. Tom, Justin, could I ask you to share maybe a, a few concluding thoughts about, you know, just where downtown Cleveland is and and where you think we're headed over the next 10 years. 
Tom, I'll let, you, I'll let you go first. I'll give a couple examples. One is we've done a lot of historic development, so people say, oh, geez, we don't have any more buildings to do. I want to make people aware that we've, <laughs> we've added uh, three new National Register districts recently. Mm-hmm. We're about to add a mid-century modern district in the heart of downtown where Michael reminds me we have our greatest amount of vacancy. So I think it's a great opportunity because everything takes money and resource, and the beauty of those programs is they all bring resources to the built infrastructure of a community. The other one, and I say it again, we're, we're, at, we're at the precipice of integrating and having built a 110-mile greenway that ends, in, ends or starts in downtown Cleveland. It's We have to make sure the management structures that build these places are as good as they can be so they stay special, they get maintained, and people want to use them. Just like I live near Edgewater Park. It's a radical... It's, it was always good enough to use every day. I'm there every day. But now that it's a metro park, it's even more fantastic. So we need that level of leadership at all parts of the community. And I think some of it's coming, so stay tuned. We surveyed 52% of downtown residents actually appreciated or loved living in their historical buildings. So to attest to your keeping up with the historical preservation of these buildings is is what it is. I, You know, quickly, I'd say that we have uh, three to five years to make some really important decisions about the future of our city that we don't get things right on public transit, public education, and making big bets on infrastructure. I look at an airport, I look at Burke, then I think we're going to see a point where the renaissance is stalled if we don't have this boldness and leadership and boldness and thinking. Because I don't want us to be in a point where we were in the mid-90s where we had this great enthusiasm with Gateway mm-hmm. and things just kind of petered yeah. out. Amen to that. And <laughs> When you look at our economy right now, especially in the U.S., mid-sized cities have so much upside to really kind of punch above its weight and really be truly globally competitive. I look at Oklahoma City. I look at Minneapolis. I look at Pittsburgh. Cleveland can be in that upper echelon if we do some tweaks around the edges to get that boldness and leadership. Yeah, but also being our own, I think, is important. You know, not— Everyone says, why can't we be a Pittsburgh or, you know, you, you'll hear that from time to yeah. time. And it's, we're trying to be ourselves, but we're trying to make it even better. And sometimes we had to, we had to get out of our own ways. And sometimes <laughs> we're, sometimes yeah. we're exactly. ahead of those other cities. Exactly. Pittsburgh came to Cleveland to learn how to do adaptive reviews. They had, they were 10 years behind us on those projects. So mm-hmm. some areas we can lead, some areas we should. We can improve on. Exactly. exactly. It's a mixed story. Well, Tom, Justin, thanks for joining us for this very first edition of the Then There's Cleveland podcast. You've made it a terrific first episode, and I hope everybody's enjoyed listening, and we'll talk to you next time. You're not going to say goodbye to me. (laughs) Lauren, I'm going to see you in a few minutes. (laughs) Thanks for having us. Thank you. The Downtown Cleveland Alliance is a nonprofit organization that has been serving downtown Cleveland for the past 12 years, working to establish downtown as the most dynamic place to live, work, and play. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram to stay current on what's happening downtown. For information on how to start, work, and grow in downtown Cleveland, just visit downtowncleveland.com. Then There's Cleveland is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to producer Sarah Wilgroup, audio engineer Eric Coltnow, and accounts manager Connor Standish.
My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.